Thanks, Kathy, for leading us in prayer and reading for us. Um, something I forgot to mention at the beginning of the service is that uh, sometime over the wildness that is the Christmas season, uh, Jeff and Rebecca had a baby girl. And if you don't know who they are, I'm just going to ask them to go like this. It's their first child, and they're super happy. And I would tell you her name, but I keep blowing her the pronunciation. Um, Ev- Ev- Avalia? Evalia. Evalia. And she's super cute. So, if you don't know Jeff and Rebecca, get to know them um, even if it's just so that you can hold their baby. Next week, uh, I'm very excited that next week we're going to enter into a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, For about eight years or so, I've been wanting to preach on the Sermon Sermon on the Mount, and uh, the time has come. We're going to start that next week. Just a sec, I got a cough. Can you mute me? Okay, but today what I'd like to do is I'd just like to take a few minutes to to talk with you a little bit and think uh, with you a little bit uh, about the subject of leadership and biblical leadership. As was mentioned, uh, we're going to start the process of nominating elders and deacons uh, at Grace Valley Church. These are two types of leadership, as I said, that that God has laid out in his word uh, for us to, to use and look to uh, in the organization of the church. It's not the only type of leadership, and it's not the only leaders we have in this church. In fact, many of you are already leaders in this church, uh, leading uh, worship, leading prayer groups, leading Bible study, leading Grace Kids, so leading Boys Club or Girls Club or Grief Share or Tax Clinic. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. These are all leadership roles in the church, of course, but there's two unique uh, roles in the church of elder and deacon that have a unique definition. If you want to know what that's all about, of course, I encourage you to read that document that I mentioned uh, at the start of the service. And obviously, there are, there are not just different types of leadership positions. There's also different kinds of leaders. There are different styles of leadership. No two leaders are the same, probably. We're all a little bit like snowflakes that way. I mean that in the good way of being unique. Um, But the Bible seems to show that there is a certain core characteristic of biblical leadership that is expected to be there regardless of the personality of the leader or the style, uh, leadership style of the leader. And therefore, I'd like us to just look at that together for a few minutes because it will be helpful as we think through potential nominees for these leadership roles at Grace Valley Church. The main metaphor, at least in the New Testament, for leadership is actually found in the word steward or stewardship. Jesus, uh, in a number of his parables, he makes them about stewards doing something. Now, the problem is is that stewards are are kind of a foreign concept to us, and that's why you won't even see that word in much of our newer translations 
of the Bible. So we have to do a little bit of work in understanding this concept of stewardship so that we can see how important it actually is. And what we're going to do is we're just going to look at these few verses in Luke chapter 12 where stewardship is the theme that Jesus is working with in his conversation with his disciples. In verse 42, it says, the Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food uh, allowance at the proper time? Now, that word uh, uh, manager, you see, who is the faithful and wise manager? That word manager there is actually uh, a Greek word. I don't do this often, but I'm going to do this this time. Uh, a Greek word that is the combination of two other Greek words. And it's this word oikonomos. Oiko is the Greek word for house. Namos is the Greek word for rule. And so this manager is actually a house ruler. That's what a steward is. In older translations, if you look at the King James Version, it'll call that position a steward. Here in the NIV, they're called a manager. And what was this manager supposed to do? What was this house ruler supposed to do? They were supposed to manage the estate of the owner, which uh, our, our verse here in 42 calls the master. So the master is the owner of an estate. The house manager is the house ruler of an estate, a steward of the estate. And usually this estate was relatively large and it had all kinds of physical resources and uh, equipment and buildings and things like that. But it also had other resources. It had people resources who had to be managed. And, and this steward would be in charge of and manager of the whole kit and caboodle that's biblical language, by the way. The whole kit and caboodle on behalf of the owner. They didn't own any of this stuff themselves, but they had near, near complete authority over the stuff on behalf of the manager to make decisions, the master, sorry, to make decisions about those resources. Probably the most uh, clear and obvious example of that is the character Joseph. You'll remember in Genesis, when Joseph uh, is sold to Potiphar, uh, Potiphar recognizes these gifts and skills in Joseph, and we read that, that Potiphar made him uh, master over everything that he owned. So that's what a steward is. A steward is a house manager over the estate and the resources of the owner. Now, what does a manager do? Well, the parables show us that the, the purpose of the steward was to cultivate the resources of the master. They were to use their authority to grow their master's estate. And if they didn't do that, that was a sign of bad management, and that was not good. So, for example... You may remember that there's a story that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 about uh, the, the bags of gold. He, the master, the owner, he has five bags of gold for one steward, servant. He has uh, three bags of gold for another steward, servant. And then he has one bag of gold for one more steward, servant. And the, the one with five turns it into ten. The one with three turns it into six. But what does the one with one bag of gold do? He buries it, right? And he keeps it safe. 
And so when the owner returns, the owner says, okay, what have you done with, with my stuff? And, and the, the one with one says, well, I knew that you were a harsh man, you know, and I, I didn't want to mess things up, so I took very good care of your resources. Here it is exactly as you left it. And he is judged for that. You see, we're not, the steward is not supposed to just be the caretaker of the resources of the master. The steward is required to actually put those resources to work, to cultivate them, to increase them, to, to bear fruit in them. And to simply uh, take care of those resources and, and to sit on those resources and, and protect those resources from decline without attempting to uh, to cultivate and nurture those resources for prosperity, for progress, is a sin. And at the same time, if the steward uh, takes the, the resources of the master and uses them for their own gain, they're exploitive or they're cruel, and they make it about them, that's a bad thing too. And they also will be judged. Remember what Jesus says at the last verse of the passage we just read. The master of that, house, of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces. This is Jesus talking. This is Jesus, meek and mild, talking about what the master, and he, by the way, is the master in this story, will do if the leaders that he has put in charge, the stewards that he's put in charge of the res his resources, if he uses them exploitively for selfish gain, he will cut them to pieces and assign them a place with the unbelievers. So what is the steward supposed to do instead of abuse the resources, the people, and the property of the master? Well, it helps us to understand another part of the character of a steward. Go back to verse 42 again. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time. So the steward is put in charge of the resources to, 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 to be in authority over them. Then it says this in verse 43, it will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. So the steward is called a manager in verse 42, but then he's called a servant in our passage in verse 43. And actually, that word translated servant here is actually the word for slave. It's the word doulos. And everywhere in the New Testament where you see the word servant, if you're reading an NIV anyway, uh, where you see the word servant, it's actually the word slave. And the translators don't use the word slave there because it carries a lot of baggage and a lot of weight for modern people like ourselves. Typically, when we hear the word slave, we think of the race-based chattel slavery of the 17th through 19th centuries, the kind of stuff that was happening during the slave trade. And of course, we see that in that way, the slaves were treated like animals. They were treated as subhuman. It was absolutely horrible what happened there. The New Testament understanding of slavery was different. Now, Roman slavery could be harsh, but notice a couple of things, or learn a couple of things here. In the New Testament time, in the first century AD Roman period, slaves were virtually indistinguishable by race 
or by speech or by clothing from the masters of their houses or from free people. They dressed the same way. They spoke the same way. They looked the same way. So they were not segregated the way that uh, the way slaves were segregated in the in the uh, uh, the period of, of antebellum slavery with the 17th and 1900s. Oftentimes, slaves were more educated than their owners, and that's why they were <laughs> enslaved by their owners because their their owners were using them to prosper their estates, and they often earned a good wage, sometimes even better than the wages that free hired servants received. And rarely were they slaves for life. Usually they were able to make enough money to buy their own freedom within 10 or 15 years. They were not slaves for life like like we are used to reading about in the slave trade era. Now my point is not to say slavery is good in the New Testament. That's not my point. My point is to say that slavery was very different from the slavery you and I think about now, and that's why the translators don't use the word slave, but they use the word servant instead. Everybody fitfully confused so far? Perfectly confused? Okay, good. Let me keep confusing you. Regardless of whether we're talking about first century slavery or we're talking about Uh, the slavery from the 17th to the 19th centuries, or we're talking about the ancient slavery practiced by the Hebrews, regardless of which type of slavery you talk about, there was one thing that was similar in each of those contexts, and it was this. No slave can quit their job. This is what made them different from servants. When you think of servants, you're thinking probably, if you're like me, you're thinking Downton Abbey. You know, you have footmen and valets and what else did you have? Maids. And they lived back of house or, or what were, where did they live? Under house or something like that? Below house? I can't remember what it's called. I did watch Downton Abbey. I loved that show. It was so cool. But they could leave their job if they felt that they were being mistreated by their by the, the, the earl and his family living upstairs, they could quit and they could go somewhere else. But a slave cannot leave their job. A slave is bound unconditionally to their master. They must comply. They, they're, they're, to comply is absolute, it is categorical, it is unrestricted. They must do the will of their master and they cannot quit. They cannot protest and say, but I won't do that. Now, why am I going on and on and on like this? Because the New Testament picture of a Christian leader is a very unique thing. A New Testament leader, or Christian leader in the New Testament, is a servant manager, is a slave ruler. They're a servant manager, they're a slave ruler. And this is utterly unique. This is the genius of the biblical model of leadership. And actually, it is what enables Christian leaders to lead in their institutions, particularly in the church, effectively. This is unique. You won't see this model in other forms of leadership. You don't think CEOs uh, see themselves, you think CEOs see themselves as leaders of companies, they see themselves as, as slaves? Well, maybe they feel that way sometimes when the hours they have to work, Right? But they don't see themselves as slaves to the resources. They see themselves as masters over the resources. Think about this. 
The Christian message is this. To those of you who maybe don't understand Christianity very well, let me help you. The Bible teaches that all human beings are slaves to something. Romans chapter 6 says that you are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to righteousness. And what the Apostle Paul means by that is, is that we are either a slave to ourselves, to our, to our own desires, our own ego, or we're slaves to other things that, that are, are idols in our lives, or we're slaves to the devil. Those, there's that option, or you are a slave to God. You are a slave to Christ. There is no third option. There is no such thing as absolute freedom. Bob Dylan said it himself. Everybody's got to serve somebody. And that's the Bible's teaching about the human heart. The truth is, is that all of us have a Lord. We have a master. Deep in our heart, we all have things that we feel we cannot refuse them. That we must do their bidding or we will be crushed. Think about this. How would you feel... If you lost your career, how would you feel if you lost the romantic love of your partner? If they one day said to you, I don't love you? Or, or what about your family? How would you feel, parents, how would you feel if one of your kids went off the rails and walked away from the Lord or walked away from the church or said to you, I hate you, I don't want to live here anymore, I'm out. Now, of course, in all of those cases, you can feel bad. Of course, you would feel bad. It would be hard to, to deal with. But if you would think to yourself, I cannot live without my career. I don't know who I am if I'm not a fill in the blank. Or if you think about your husband or your wife, this is a terrible thing for you. Those of you who are in good marriages, here's your number one dangerous idol. It's probably your spouse. If you're in, especially if you're in a good marriage. Because you have a tendency to want to look to them as the one who gives you your security, who gives you your identity, who gives you your sense of joy and satisfaction. And you think in your mind, if I were ever to lose them, I don't know what I'd do. I couldn't live without them. And we use this language all the time to express our love and, and care for our spouse. I say this kind of thing about my wife too, but sometimes I have to stop myself and say, wait a minute, are you just saying this or do you really mean it? It's okay to just say it. <laughs> but it's very dangerous to mean it. There are some people who look at the future of their life, and I don't want to use you, Aaron, but I'm going to use you wherever you are. She talked about her whole future falling apart at the end of a long-term relationship that didn't work out the way she expected it to. And it drove her into a period of despair where she had to reevaluate what's my God in my life? And she came to realize my God in my life is not this future I want. It's not this relationship I desire. It's this God who has sent his son into the world as the chief slave, the Lord, the master himself, came into this world and said, I have come not to, to be served. I have come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And when, when that penny dropped, in Aaron's life, she was able to say, I can carry on. And the same is true for any one of us who wrestles with the idols that, that rear their heads in our lives. We look to Jesus and we say, I need to enslave myself to him if I want to be truly free. 
See, the gospel is basically this. If Jesus is your master, if you are a slave to Christ, you cannot be controlled by anything else. Not a spouse, not a career, not a family, not your reputation, not money. If you are a slave to Jesus, then you are actually free from the kind of slavery that so weighs us down. Because you see, Jesus, he is the only master that that does not abuse you if you embrace him. If you embrace your career as your master, then you are constantly feeling the anxiety of performance. Did I do it right? Have I done enough? Am I popular enough? Am I pleasing my employer enough? Am I doing the things to advance my career? You will feel yourself on this treadmill or on this this hamster wheel of constant performance and it will tear you apart. But if Jesus is your master, if you are unconditionally enslaved to him, you realize that you are not your own. You hear that in Aaron's testimony? You are not your own, but you were bought at a price, at the price of Jesus, priceless blood shed on the cross for you. When, you. when that sinks into you, you're not enslaved, you're actually free. Now, what does that have to do with leadership? I thought this was a sermon on leadership. Well, I hope you're following me. I'm going to give you three quick applications. First of all, when that's your understanding of what it means to be a Christian leader, that I am given resources, yes, that I am in charge of, yes, but I am a slave to Jesus Christ at the same time, that means you always know your mission. You always know what you're supposed to do with what God has given you. You're to seek His glory. You're to, to follow His mission. You're, you're there to accomplish His agenda, not your own. Always, never your own, always his. And then you don't have to think too hard about what, what am I trying to do here? What am, I, what am I supposed to be doing here? You know what you're here for. You know what you're here for? Follower of Jesus Christ. You know what you're here for, human being made in the image of God? You're made and you're here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what you're here for. Not to be a an enslaved person who's just doing the right things because God tells me to do them. No. Enjoy Him. Rest in His salvation. Rest in the fact that you have nothing to do. You You don't have to do a thing to please Him. You don't have to do a thing to make yourself worthy of His love and His care. You don't have to do a blasted thing to have the creator of the universe look at you and say, you are the apple of my eye. And so, every day you wake up and you know, okay, I'm, maybe I don't know what my career should be. Maybe I don't know, uh, you know how best to invest my money. Apparently, crypto is a bad idea. I can give you that hot tip. Uh, maybe I don't know what school I'm supposed to go to right now, but I do know why I'm here. And so my agenda will always be about fulfilling the mission of Christ. That's the first thing. The second thing mean is, is that 
Therefore, being a Christian leader is first of all about character. The Apostle Paul, or sorry, the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 5, he says this. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Listen to this. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. The leader is the chief slave, is the chief cook and bottle washer in any organization. They are there to serve their constituents. They are there to serve their flock. They are there to lay themselves down for the sake of their flock. I remember when I, uh, when I was uh, a teacher, I taught at TDCH for one year, and they had the spring banquet every year. And at this spring banquet, the kids get all dressed up, and they sit around tables, and they get fed a really good meal in in the gym and stuff like that. And you know who the waiters were? The teachers. And the principal made it a principle that the teachers would be the servers at the students' banquet. And what I loved about that was it was an actual illustration and picture of leadership being willing to do whatever it is that needs to be done. Because their agenda is not to lord it over their constituents, over their flock, over their members. Their agenda is to what? To take what God has given in a particular place, let's say Grace Valley Church, and you are all the resources of God. You are all people made by God and brought to this place for the purpose of advancing His cause in this world and in the Dundas community. And the leadership of this church is here to discern how best to cultivate you and deploy you for the mission of Christ in the world. And therefore, sometimes it means doing the most basic, simple, menial thing for the sake of your community. This third thing, last thing, well, let me just say this first. The reason we know this is the case is because Jesus Christ is not just our Savior, but He is our example. And in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, your attitude in your relationships with one another have the same mindset of Christ. This is Philippians 2, beginning at verse 5, and it says, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for His own advantage... Rather, he made himself nothing by by taking the very nature of a servant, actually it's the word slave, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus was the the ultimate Lord uh, master slave. He was the ultimate servant ruler. 
Because Jesus emptied himself of all his prerogatives as the Lord of the universe and he came to serve us. That's why he made a picture of his ministry at that last meal with his disciples and he got down and on, on his knees and he took their smelly, stinky feet in his hands and he washed them clean, even getting between the toes where all the grime and grit sticks. And this is the Lord of the universe washing these guys' feet. And they're men's feet. And men's feet are ugly he was the ultimate steward both lord and slave last thing and these are all things I hope you're thinking about as you're considering nominations over the next few weeks it means if this is what you are as a Christian leader it means you can be faithful to your calling especially when pressure is placed upon you as a leader. Look, this church has different demographics. We have people of different ages and in different life stages coming from different backgrounds who all have different preferences and all have different ideas about what makes a good church and how a church should run and what we should do, etc. Lots of opinions. And there's nothing wrong with all those opinions. But a slave ruler who knows that 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 They are here to serve you, but they're ultimately here to serve Christ. And therefore, they will not change their convictions about the calling of Christ in order to meet the the here and now felt needs of a community. And on top of that, you have a society, you have a culture in which we find ourselves right now as Christians uh, where, where many of the convictions and increasingly some of the convictions that Christian communities like Grace Valley have that we hold on to are not just seen as strange or weird, but are seen as downright dangerous. And the secular community puts a tremendous amount of pressure on, on those who don't conform to, to, to in the, with the, the values of the broader community to, to change their thinking on things. And that pressure is only going to mount. How in the world do you resist that? When you remember that you are merely a steward of the resources of Christ, who is the owner and when you look to your guiding guidebook on how to, to live out your faith in this world, when those values of the world in which you live conflict with the values of the Word of God, you can humbly, though boldly, say, like Peter and John both did before the Sanhedrin when they were told, stop talking about Jesus and the resurrection. They said, sorry guys, I must serve God rather than man because we're bound to him and we have no choice let's pray father the strange leadership model of scripture is that leaders they do not flex their muscles, they do not uh, they do not wield their power over their those put in their charge, but rather they they serve, they get down on their knees and they sacrifice their own desires and wants in order to achieve the goal of our king, Jesus.
We pray, Lord, that as we consider uh, nominations for leadership in Grace Valley Church, and even as we go about our leadership roles in Grace Valley, we, we don't have to be officially uh, office bearers in the church to lead. Everybody here is probably a leader in some way. Even our kids, they're leaders in their classrooms with their friends or on their sports teams or in their music groups or, or whatever. And whatever capacity you call us to be leaders, whether we're parents or whether we're students, whether we're church people or part of other organizations in our work, wherever we are called to lead, Father, may we share the mind and attitude of Christ, not hold on to power, but give it up in the service of others and for the glory of your name. In Jesus we pray, amen. So, <clears throat> oftentimes we take uh, questions after the message. Oh, yeah, sermon breakout. If you are in grade five, is it five, six, seven, eight? Five, five and six? I, I was not here last week, so I forgot how to do everything. Is it five and six? If you're in grade five and six, you can go with Kathy, where you'll spend a few minutes just talking about the sermon together and getting an awesome snack and then you can join your parents at the end of the service uh, when the service is ended but you guys all know that I'm the one who didn't know that so yeah we take questions uh, after the message often um, I'm, I'm going to limit uh, the questions today because of time one question is what's a caboodle um, that really does beat me beats me I don't know what it is what's that Look it up in the Bible. That's right. Somebody pull out your, your phone and do a search on your Bible and look up Caboodle and then uh, get back to me. <laughs> uh, and then this is another question. It's actually not about the sermon. <laughs> um, but a, clarifica a clarification question about testimonies. Uh, will the testimonies they write and not be read aloud be able to be read by the rest of the church? So no. So you have to submit a testimony to the session as evidence of your faith. And then if you are willing, we ask you to share it before the church. And if you are willing to share it with the church in written form but not speak it out, then we would certainly find a, a venue, an avenue to publish it to the congregation. So that would be a decision that you would get to make. Good question, though. Thank you for that. Okay, somebody has told me what a caboodle is. An informal way to talk about an entire bunch of some item or category. So there you go. The whole kit and caboodle. 